0: you still don't have a sega cd what are you waiting for nintendo to make one you have seen the games right wrong answer man show them want to see more hey you
1: It is good. Think same.
2: Think same. Hello and welcome to another extra special episode of the Sega Guys. I'm Dan, the Mega Driver, one half for the team, and I'm joined, as always, by the Sega Holic himself. It's James. How are you doing, James?
1: I am absolutely fantastic, Dan. Yourself? Yes, mate. I am
2: very excited uh, for the show that we have today because we've got a very special treat for our listeners and, and for ourselves. Let's be honest. Um, we've got a very special <laughs> guest. Uh, this guest, to any Sega fan, he needs no introduction, but he's such a legend, I'm gonna give him one anyway. He's the former CEO of Toy Giant's Matchbox and Mattel, as well as LeapFrog. But to our Sega fans, we'll remember him most fondly as a former president of Sega America. He's an absolute Sega legend, and it is an honor and a privilege to welcome Tom Kalinske onto the show. Welcome, Tom, how you doing?
1: I'm doing great, and thanks for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this chat. Tom, I have to admit, right, this, 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 this recording right here is, is something that Dan and I, in the very infancy of this podcast, sat down and said if we, we had a list of guests, you know, Al Nelson was on there and yourself was on there. And for us to have you both on um, before the podcast that's a year old is absolutely mind blown So I, I can't thank, you know, obviously Al and yourself enough for, for giving us the time to, to chat about all things Sega. Oh, wonderful. Well, Al's a good friend and I chat with him, oh, gosh, almost every week. Great stuff! Great stuff. So, I mean, you you had a remarkable, you know, career before even coming to Sega. Um, are you proud that many of the products that you launched, you know, He-Man—that's like a childhood icon for me alone—you know—are ones that you helped save, like Barbie and Matchbox. Are you really proud that those are ones that still endure even today?
0: I I really am, uh, and it's it's a little, frankly, surprising to me. Uh, one of the first ones I did, you probably aren't too aware of over there, but I did. I was involved with Flintstones Chewable Children's Vitamins, and for Miles Laboratories, and it became the number one children's chewable vitamin back in the late nineteen sixties when I was working on it, and it still is today. So I had Flintstones vitamins, Barbie dolls, Hot Wheels cars, Matchbox, uh, Leapfrog, and Sega. So I feel I feel very good about it. I've been very very fortunate. Absolutely
2: amazing. Yeah, I. I, I... I only learned about the Flintstones Tribal when uh, reading through uh, the Console Wars book and seeing the, the CBS show, but I was amazed that, yeah, that, that too is still running today. Um, but while you were at Mattel in your early days, um, you did uh, launch a successful line of handheld games, didn't you? Um, can you tell us a bit about that? I mean, How did you feel when uh, Mattel went all in to the video game market within television? Did you want to be part of that at the time, or were you happy where you were?
0: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I actually, uh, I, I really liked the fact that uh, we did the handheld video games and they were successful. We initially marketed them to dads, by the way, for Father's Day uh, oh, wow. right at the launch. Uh, and so they, they were they were successful. Of course, kids bought them as well. But the, it was kind of a, a neat thing to try to get dads involved with them. Uh, and then the Intellivision uh, development occurred under, for a brief period of time, it was actually in part of my my group uh at Mattel and what happened is Atari of course was wildly successful and Intellivision was wildly successful and the board of directors and the chairman at the time said well this is going to be a huge business we're going to set it up as a separate company and we're literally going to move it out of the toy building on Hawthorne Boulevard and in Hawthorne, California, or Rosecrans Boulevard in Hawthorne, California, we're going to move it down the road. And so they took it away. And I was I was upset over that. I would have liked for it to have stayed uh, under me, uh, but it didn't. And I do recall there was a board meeting toward the end of Intellivision's life where uh, I was on the board still, and because uh, I was president of the toy division. And I, I went into this board meeting and I said, geez, there's, there's a lot of talk among retailers about, about too much. Atari inventory and television inventory, and it's slowing down at retail, and there's going to be a problem. And I remember the CEO of Mattel at the time saying to me, "Yeah, that's nice. Well, you can go take care of your toys; we'll take care of the television." <laughs> oh, wow!
1: Jeez! <laughs> oh, <laughs>
2: if, if only they knew. Um, but wow! Um, so Mattel obviously saw the television, as you say, as as something that was going to be big at that point, given the success of Atari. Did Did you see? Your future in video games, I know you was on the, the board for Intellivision, as you say, but did you see video games sort of as the future? Did you see them getting as big as, as you would see them get in your career?
0: Not, not at that time, no. I, I, in fact, I, as I mentioned there, I was very worried about it because of what was happening at, at Retail America uh, and it was the beginning of the decline of Atari and soon thereafter television. So I, I didn't think that I was going to have much of a part a, a in the video game industry at that time.
1: Absolutely brilliant. So, I mean, your, your journey to Sega then, Tom. So, I mean, you first crossed paths with Hayo and Akayama in the late 70s while working at Mattel. So what were your first impressions of him? Uh, and did you ever envisage at that time that you would ever work as closely with them as you eventually would go on to do? Uh,
0: no. And,
1: and the meeting that I recall
0: having in the, in the late uh, late 70s was with Paramount Pictures, which owned Sega at the time and sega reported to barry diller and michael eisner famous two famous characters here in american business Uh, eisner obviously went on back was president of disney for years and years and years Mm -hmm. but back in those days it reported to uh to paramount and uh, at mattel we used to of course license different properties that paramount had in their movie division or, or if they were doing television shows uh possibly there as well so as i recall i was over there meeting with those guys about some other license i don't recall which one and haio was there and that's when i that's when i actually first met him so uh, and I, I didn't expect i would ever be working with the guy or for the guy at that time <laughs> <laughs> so
2: obviously famously he came and in, uh, interrupted your your holiday in, in hawaii uh, and uh invited you over invited you over to japan um Quite amusingly, painted in in the console wars documentary on CBS, you're still in your you're still in your, your beach gear. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I did
1: I did always wonder that when I watched that when did did he really go to Japan in his he's beach gear? It's the fact he show just sitting on the plane with the sunglasses and the shorts, you know, sipping a drink.
0: <laughs> no, I, that that was kind of funny in the documentary, and obviously I did not go to Tokyo in my swimming suit and a Hawaiian shirt in those days. And it was more formal, so I, I obviously code no. yeah <laughs> uh, but brilliant, but brilliant but that fa-
2: that famous meeting over in japan um but they've Haya Nakayama first introduced you to the the take genesis um and the and the and the game gear um what impressed you the most when you saw those two pieces of hardware
0: well again, remember now I was used to video games looking like what Atari looked like and in television looked like and i I'd, I'd seen some n e s uh uh games as well so i was familiar with what 8-bit uh, nes looked like uh i really wasn't familiar with the master system and and so when i saw 16-bit and how much better it looked than what i was accustomed to it blew me away i mean i was in complete shock i thought this is wonderful uh i, I, in, I mean and now you look back on it and i, I saw it, this is so realistic. Look how realistic everything looks in these games, which of course is nothing as realistic as they are today. to be close. But back then it was just such a, a huge leap above what I was used to that I, I really did. I was very impressed and I fell in love with it. And then I was also familiar with Game Boy from Nintendo, which was, you know, gray and white or green, and white, whatever you want to call those colors. It certainly wasn't color. And, uh, and I see Game Boy, I mean, excuse me, I see Game Gear, what became Game Gear, and its uh, color on an LCD screen, and it also looked great. It was such a step above what Nintendo had. So that's what really convinced me that there was a shot at uh, upending Nintendo with these two better technologies.
1: Yes, it's quite amusing as well whenever you see... Um... Obviously, like kids today are used to their, their Switches and their Switch lights, but they, they don't know the struggles of, of wearing the Game Gear battery pack on your belt. <laughs> we we live that dream, Tom.
0: Yeah, I, I admit, I have to admit, I had to use my plug-in uh, adapter quite a bit with Game Gear. <laughs>
1: uh, what, what a system, though.
0: It, it was way ahead of its time, I would say, for sure, and I thought the games looked very good on it as well.
1: Mm-hmm. So I mean, in console wars, we we heard about an, a first day uh, at Sega of America HQ and an exchange with Mike Katz. So what did he say, uh, or did he give you anything, you know, any concerns about your new role? Uh, and did you and Mike remain on good terms afterwards?
0: Yeah, it's sort of a, a interesting time because I was friends with Mike from you know he worked for me at Mattel, and so I knew him very very well. We used to play tennis together. And uh, so here he was, the guy who was running Sega of America that Sega of Japan was not happy with. And so it wasn't going to be a, a good situation for him. And uh, we had a conversation of, about that. And, of course, he was upset about that. And he kind of he warned me that, uh, that uh, I, I had to be careful that Sega Japan might say they were going to let me make all the decisions, but they probably wouldn't. So it was kind of a warning. And then, of course, shortly thereafter, he, he, left, he left Sega all, altogether. I'm trying to remember the line from the book, but he—he uh, he sort of shouted something out to you,
2: wasn't it, in your first day in the office?
0: Oh, I can't remember what that was. but <laughs> I think you're right.
2: <laughs> but then, uh, obviously, when after that, um, it was all in. Going for, that Sega were going into battle against Nintendo. So Nintendo yes. at the time, they kind of had the, they had the market in a stranglehold. Um, and they seemed to be employing every trick in the book to, to maintain that stranglehold in the market. Uh, it seemed to be under the guise of protecting it from another crash, you know, as we were saying about the, 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 Atari crash that happened. Um, did you feel frustrated in trying to prize the market share from their grip? Or did you feel some re, and did you feel that some retailers were actually relieved to have an alternative to Nintendo?
0: well they they really they were a vicious competitor, and they and one of the ways they competed was they threatened retailers If you carry Sega, you won't get your shipments that you ordered of Nintendo hardware or of Nintendo game software and they did the same thing with third party publishers. If you publish on Sega, uh, then chances are the next Nintendo game you do won't be rated very highly, and you won't get the cartridges that you want so they they really threatened uh, uh it was really monopolistic practices that they were engaged with uh so it was very difficult to to, uh, to overcome that but at the same time as you just said retailers didn't like being treated that way and they were really rooting for us most cases anyways to become uh, successful uh, because they didn't like being dictated to by by nintendo so, uh, yes, the retailers were, were, most in most cases, they were hoping we would be successful. On the other hand, they also had been burned by Sega during the 8-bit master system days. And Sega had a bad reputation, at least in the United States in those days, of, of poor shipping and not living up to commitments or promises and advertising. And so, you know, so, I, I mean, I, I remember when I toured uh, Retail America here, and I would get lectured by the president of Target or the these senior guys at Toys R Us about how poorly Sega had lived up to their commitments, and that they hoped that under my leadership that yeah, that would change. And, and of course, I was intent that it would.
2: Well, that was something I wasn't aware of. I don't think that's into that in the in the in the book or the documentary. That that there was that sort of perception of Sega in the retail space. Um, so yeah, that is uh that is that's pretty amazing that you managed to turn that perception around. Was that part of is that due to Sega directly, or I know they transferred the business to Tonka when it was in the early phase of the master system days in the U.S.
0: Yeah, both a good deal of it was due, due, uh, due to the way Tonka handled the, uh, the master system. But part of it was also the, you know, the, the sales guys, marketing guys at, at Sega of America who would make promises and they didn't live up to those promises. I remember coming back from that tour of Retail America and I like, coming back to the offices uh, in South San Francisco at the time and saying to the team, Wow. Well, that was like getting a cold shower. <laughs> these guys and hearing what they thought about us. So I, I know that, uh, uh, you know, and again, I was intent that we weren't going to be, we weren't going to continue that in that fashion. We were going to live up to our commitments and we were going to, uh, to be a good partner for the retailers.
2: Oh, it must have been a hard sell. And, uh, I think as Al said on the, when we had him on the show, um, Retailers don't like being told what to do; they like to tell you what to do. <laughs> exactly, exactly.
1: <laughs> oh, I mean, at that time, that there definitely seemed to be a genuine hostility, you know, between Sega and Nintendo, uh, even referenced in, in console wars uh, as the representatives despising each other. Um, I mean, that was one thing that I really took away from from the documentary. Whenever um, you know, like Howard Lincoln and his team, that even all these years on, there seemed to be like a almost a resentment there towards, you know, how dare Sega have come in and, and, and taken market share away from us. I think one of the quotes from Howard Lincoln about Sonic is that um it says it, it wasn't a great game but it gave them momentum. Uh, you know I mean so how how much truth was there to that kind of that quote of despising each other? Uh, and did you ever actually get to sit down with Howard Lincoln and his team, you know, and speak in more civil terms? Well, the,
0: there absolutely was this, uh, despising of, of the, each other. Uh, and for me, it wasn't so much for me against Howard Lincoln, although, uh, uh and I'll get to that later, but for me against Peter Main, their head of, uh, their head of marketing and sales, because what Howard didn't like speaking at the conferences here in the United States, but Peter did. So I often would be, uh, either right before him or right after him on stage speaking in front of analysts and uh, and shareholders and what have you and video game people. And uh, I remember one time uh, we had just passed them in share of market and according to Nielsen and uh, the Nielsen uh, research firm and, uh, and Peter just refused to accept that. He refused to believe that. And so he was, he was up on stage talking about how, they were better than we were, and their numbers were really much better than what Nielsen was reporting, and on and on and on. And I followed him, and I remember going on stage, and I said, well, that's sort of like following Dr. Kavorkian on Dr. suicides suicide in the United States. <laughs> and, and I remember uh, once leaving uh, the hall, kind of walking with Peter Maine, and, and he continued to be uh, uh, insulting and what have you, and it, it, we literally almost came to blows. We almost got in a fistfight on uh, I don't remember whether it was Park Avenue or Fifth Avenue in New York City. <laughs> <laughs> but but we did we did not like each other. I heard they even had a dartboard with my face on it up in the NICL. Uh But Jeez. now Howard was another Howard was another story. Howard uh, as the years went by. And uh, you know he resisted a lot of the things we wanted to do. He initially resisted, uh, you know, doing the uh, rating board, the service, the ERBSB, and we had our own rating system at at Sega, where I'd hired Dr. Arthur Prober, who I'd known from the toy industry, to put together a panel of PhDs and experts in childhood uh, development, and uh, and come up with a rating system. Uh, he didn't want to do that. He, he initially didn't want to do the separate show. He wanted to continue staying at CES, which I hated. And I wanted us to have our own, our own industry association, not the software association, which was dominated by Microsoft and, and, uh, the big business software firms, but rather have our own video game association, which we obviously started. Initially, he didn't want to do any of those things. But years later, he told me that he really was wrong on that and he really was happy that we had done all those things that we, that we did that initially he objected to. Now, Arakawa is another story. I tried talking to Arakawa and he would not talk to me. I remember <laughs> I, honestly, I remember passing him, uh, we were literally walking toward each other at an E3 show and I kind of stuck out my hand to shake his hand and he looked the other way and walked right past me. Oh, wow. Wow! Yeah. So I would say there was a bit of upsetness
1: with say uh. <laughs> just a just a wee bit, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow.
2: Yeah, I do remember the the, the section again in the Console Wars book where um yeah yourself and Peter Mayne I think you're in an elevator, and uh, I can't remember who the uh the other party is, but it's it it sounds as if it he was essentially stopping it from becoming a, 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 a yeah com- almost coming to blows, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. <it> really does. <laughs> uh, I would kill them.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh,
2: oh brilliant but yeah i mean because you you had your battle with nintendo and you also ha- seem to be fighting on another front with sega japan which we'll, we'll, we'll come on to a little bit later um but something that comes across in the in the console wars book is there does seem to be this sort of battle of conscience that you have with yourself as the genesis library began to mature and there seemed to be more mature content coming out on it you know and you had your night traps and your mortal combats so you mentioned just now about the the, the rating system that sega had spearheaded uh, and that led to eventually you know that you had the video game rating council and then that led, led to the esrb um did that did that um do you look back on that with some pride that that still endures today that you still get every every game in in the u.s still with subject to that rating system
0: Yeah, absolutely. And there's a little. Let me give you a little bit of more history on that. So I felt we needed a rating system fairly soon after I joined the company because remember our our strategy was to go after older age players. Mm. Well, how you go after teens and college age, largely men in the early days? How do you do that if you only do uh, children's animated uh, type of video games? If you're going to do more mature video games, just like there are more mature movies. Let's have a, a rating system so that the so the audience knows whether this is a general audience or for, for kids over 13 or for a mature audience. And so initially I went to see uh, Jack Valenti, who ran the Motion Picture Association rating system, which was obviously well established and well known and well understood. And I, I said to Jack, uh, we'd like to come on board and use your rating system. And he kind of poo-pooed the whole idea. He said, what, wow, video games—that's a small little business. We're the movie industry. We don't want to have anything to do with you." <laughs> Unfortunately, Jack is Jack is dead today. I would—I'd love to have been able to call him up and say, "By the way, the video game industry is now twice the size of the movie industry <laughs> and the music industry combined." <laughs> but I, I won't have that opportunity. So that's why we—why I had to uh, establish our own rating system, separate from the from the movie system. Uh, and that's why I hired Oskar Prober, and, and and he hired the all these experts in different areas to develop the the rating system. And pretty much the one we established at Sega became the ESRB. I mean, the ESRB and then other some of the other video game companies don't like to admit that. But other than changing the the nomenclature a little bit, it was pretty much the same system that we had established at Sega.
1: No, I mean it's it's quite remarkable. Tom, whenever you look back and you look at you know things like the the rating system, you know the the lifestyle route that that gaming took because you guys came in and chose to go after an older demographic. So you know, so while, while Sega are very different today to what they were back then, you know, you you guys blazed a path, you know, for 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 where gaming has ultimately ended up.
0: Yeah, and I'm I'm very proud about that. I mean, I I really am happy that. Uh, first of all, let's let's uh, philosophically, play is a good thing. Play is what makes us human. Play is what how children learn. I mean, Maria Montessori said play is children's work. Well, it's more than that. It's really children's education as well. And so us continuing to play as we age, I think, is very healthy and good for us. And I'm glad. I think so many since now, the average age of their player is 31 years of age. That means there's a whole lot of 40- and 50-year-olds playing as well as teenagers and 20-year-olds.
1: <laughs> we've, we've never stopped, Tom. Good, good. Don't. (laughs) I don't think my wife quite appreciates the fact that I play quite much, but another another matter. Um, But I mean, we'll we'll move on to to Sega and EA, Um, and obviously, you know, Sega's relationship with EA would be one of the Genesis's most defining. uh, And I think it would be fair to argue that without the platform that that Sega and the Genesis afforded them, that they wouldn't be. Where they are today, you look at FIFA, you look at Madden, NHL, massive franchises even today, you, you guys set them on their way. Um, but there is one meeting with uh, with Trip Hawkins where he, he apparently had Sega almost hostage. I mean, did you find Trip difficult to deal with uh, and how beneficial in the long run did you find that, that EA relationship?
0: Yeah, it's funny you bring that up because I'm, I'm still very friendly with Larry Probst, who's the chairman of of Electronic Arts. In fact, we belong to the same golf club. And whenever I see him, he's, he's a better golfer than I am. So he plays with a different group of guys. (laughs) But I always, I always yell out to him, remember Larry, we made you successful. (laughs) He gets a kick out of that. And there's some truth to it, obviously. Uh, but that meeting you're, you're thinking of, or you're speaking of. That was early in my time at Sega, and we were in we were in a tough position there. We needed to get uh, Joe—we'd signed Joe Montana. We needed to get Joe Montana football out, and the people who were working on it couldn't do it. I mean, it was way behind schedule. It just wasn't going to happen. And at the same time, Electronic Arts was threatening to not uh, buy cartridges from us, but to rather—they'd reverse-engineered the Genesis in a clean room, and therefore they felt legally able— to publish without paying even a royalty to <laughs> wow. uh, to Sega, so I go over to Electronic Arts, wasn't far away, uh, headquarters, and and I meet with with Trip, and of course I had a couple of my people with me, and I don't think Larry was in that meeting, but anyway, Tripp is explaining to me uh, how he's going to publish legally without having to pay us anything, and I remember saying to him, I said basically, Trip. Didn't your mother ever teach you the difference between right and wrong? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> and I explained why it was wrong for him to take advantage of us having created this this wonderful hardware, not to uh, or to think he could get away without paying anything to publish on our hardware and all the R and D that was involved in it. And uh, so we didn't get along real well initially at that meeting, but eventually. Uh, cooler heads prevailed, or cooler thoughts prevailed, and and we reached an agreement where we really needed them to finish Joe Montana football, uh, to lend us their their engine to do Joe Montana football, and for us to get that product out uh, by by Christmas time. And we did have a a pretty f- favorable relationship with them in terms of the what they paid us. Uh, you know, it was it was it was fair, I think, to both sides. But it was a good, it was certainly better than what, uh, they, that Japan had initially proposed to them. So we had a very good relationship and over the years you're absolutely right. I think at one point in their, one of their annual reports, we represented about 80% of the profit that they made was on Sega games as opposed to other games Mm -hmm. and if you remember when when ea was first formed they initially wanted to just do games on the apple platform which of course didn't didn't work out at all for them uh and they always had a very rocky relationship with nintendo as well so um so there is truth to the statement that we made them successful and they made us successful
2: for yeah, it was definitely a, a mutual uh, of mutual benefit that agreement. I think they they did get a very good deal. I think it's uh, they were paying something like ten dollars less in license fees or something to that to that region, weren't they?
0: Yeah, I actually right now don't remember the exact dollar amounts, but it was it was a big uh, a big reduction.
2: Amazing. I mean, it's EA are synonymous with with the Mega Drive's early success or with the Sega Genesis. Um, but we can't talk about the Sega Genesis without talking about Sonic the Hedgehog. Um and it's amazingly he turns 30 years years old this year. Um so
1: one of, my, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: one of my favorite stories of yours, Tom, is when uh Ruth Handler uh, has that conversation with you about Barbie and you said that Barbie will be around long after you and I are gone. Um so with that in mind, as Sonic turns 30 this year. Are you surprised at it's longevity? Did you believe that it would become as enduring as, as as Barbie would be?
0: Actually, I did. I mean, I, I really felt that uh, that Sonic was a very special character, a very special brand, a very special game, and I did I did foresee that it was going to be around, He was going to be around a, a long, long time. Maybe not uh, immediately, initially, but as we were working on it and to see how much people enjoyed it. They enjoyed the personality of Sonic. And then, of course, when we did the deal to do uh, two different television series here in the United States, we did one mm. on network television on Saturday morning, and we did another one in the afternoons after uh, late afternoon. So, after school, basically, uh, syndicated, uh, which means we gave basically the show away to stations and across the country. And in return, we got advertising uh, time that we either used ourselves or sold. Mm. Uh, so, Having had the experience of working on Barbie and the experience of working on He-Man and Masters of the Universe and Princess of Power, I knew we were building something that was going to have good life, long life, a good sustainable life. And I'm not at all surprised that uh, we're celebrating 30 years now. And, uh, and I gather the movie was very successful, and I think uh, uh, the movie next year will probably be very successful as well.
1: Uh, that's the thing as well, Tom. They, they've they've missed a trick, don't you think? They're they're bringing it out on a they're bring it out on a Friday. I think it's the eighth of April. You know, sh- surely if it's Sonic Two, you you bring it back a couple of days and you you recreate Sonic Tuesday. Surely,
0: you would think so, wouldn't you? <laughs> I was I was quite shocked that Sega didn't in, it didn't have a new Sonic game in conjunction with the launch of the movie last mm-hmm, year. Yeah, and it just bizarre to me. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, what
0: a what a missed opportunity.
1: Yeah, I think that missed opportunity, I think, sums up a lot of what, what Sega does in kind of <laughs> modern day. So so many franchises just, you know, sitting there not being used. Like, just even remaster the old ones and put them in a big collection and, you know, from across all the systems. But, yeah, who knows? Um, I mean, when, when we spoke to Al, uh, he was immensely proud that, to this day, you guys delivered the first video game street date Um, and there's actually uh, a multi-part video footage on YouTube of of you doing the Sonic Tuesday launch. Um, You bring a host of kids, teen uh, television personalities on uh, and then, you know, obviously you're kind of given a a breakdown of, you know, the sold out in the UK and it's doing well. This is what we project to sell in the US and it's sold out in Japan. Um, I mean, what, what are your memories of Sonic Tuesday? Because in that footage, you look absolutely beaming with pride, it has to be said. <laughs> well,
0: I, I was, and it was so, it was a difficult thing to do. When it was first, when we first suggested it, we were told it's impossible, can't be done. You can't get to, in the United States, 20,000 retail doors and have the product there on the same day and have them open the doors the next morning and, and, and the product is available on shelf. You can't do it, it's impossible. Well, as it turned out, next to our office, when we had, moved, we had moved Sega America from South San Francisco over to Redwood City, when we moved to Redwood City, the building next to us housed Emory Air Freight, and the, I became friends with the chairman uh, CEO of Emory Air Freight, and when I explained what we wanted to do to him, he initially said he didn't wasn't know if it was possible or not, and he came back a few days later and he said, we can do it. We can do it, at least in the United States and And so uh, that was uh, how it, i mean it was al's idea, but that's how it all you know, how it all came about uh, still required an awful lot, as you can imagine of, of mass manufacturing coordination distribution coordination, gaining it to Emory Air it had offices or uh, distribution centers all over the place, so it wasn't like there was one place we were going to ship all these to. we had to ship them all over as it was anyways, but they're the ones who delivered that night to uh to uh, un- enable us to do Sonic Tuesday. And I was very proud of it. And it's amazing to me now that this is the way almost all video games <laughs> yeah. are watched. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Again, you know, you, you go back to things that Sega, especially from your era, that you guys have pioneered. You can add that one to the checklist as well. Yes. yes.
2: But we- yeah, amazing. Amazing that all this stuff endures. But um, I still remember... Um, sonic tuesday vividly uh i still remember the, the the buses and everything it's uh absolutely wonderful memories of that um it's a it's a it's a shame that uh that that japan seemed to they went a little bit early didn't they um, yeah they, you know they couldn't possibly
0: do something we wanted to do <laughs> 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 they knew better <laughs> oh,
2: they went part of the party it felt like a whole worldwide party I and mean, I, I yeah i look at those videos that you're that you're in um with, uh, Dustin Diamond, uh, tragic what happened to him, uh, recently. But, um, just watch, watching oh. that now just brings back so many emotions. Yeah. It's wonderful.
0: Yes, it was. It really was wonderful.
2: Um, but another thing that really is wonderful to see is just this, uh, what I get from watching the CBS show, from speaking to our, and from reading, from reading the Concert Wars book. There's this tremendous sense of, of family and camaraderie. Uh, I think one of the phrases used in the Concert Wars book is, is when you join Sega, you become Sega. Um, Do you feel that that was instrumental to the success of Sega, of the genesis in America? And do you look at those back on those years uh, with fondness?
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, I am, as I indicated, not only am I close to Al and talk to him literally almost every week, but I'm very close to almost all the rest of the Sega team too. I mean, Joe Miller was one of my best friends. He unfortunately passed away from cancer. Uh Paul Rio is a very, very good friend. I still talk to him as often as I can. Shinobu Toyota, I talk to very, very frequently. Uh Diane Fernassier, Ellen Beth Van Buskirk, I've, I've been in touch with very regularly. Uh, Michaeline Christini Risley, uh, who handled licensing. She's she's nearby here. And I talk to her regularly and see her regularly. So I, I And and Ed Anunziata and a number of the developers, um, producers, I'm very much in in touch with and and very friendly with. And it it truly was a team. And and as I've always said, I get way too much credit. (laughs) They're the ones who did all the hard work. For some reason, I get the credit, but they did the work. I must really annoy them.
1: it's like the, the way that it's been set up on the, the documentary, it's kind of got you almost kind of put up there as the, the kind of hero who came in to, to save Sega. Oh, yes, I know. <laughs> I know.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's really, as you know, you, you, no one person can do any all yeah. of all. Yeah. It's really a team effort, and I was very lucky to have this team of people, exceptional people, uh, and we all got along very, very well. And, if, you know, sometimes we we, didn't, we made mistakes in hiring, and those people didn't stick around, but most of the time, I think we did a, we did a very good job of, of getting people on board and, and having them become a valued part of the, part of the team. Uh, what, I remember when we hired uh, Bill White from Nintendo. That was really something. You know, they, the <laughs> Nintendo people were very upset over that. And I remember yes. we, were, we had a company dinner somewhere in, uh, I think it was down in, uh, Monterey, California near Carmel. And for some reason we had a dinner down there. And, uh, one of the, employees, uh, senior management, I won't say who, was challenging Bill White, are you really loyal to Sega now that you've <laughs> left Nintendo? And Bill stood up and mooned Seattle. <laughs> dropped his <laughs> pants and mooned toward Seattle. This is what I think of Nintendo now. He had truly become a Sega person.
1: Oh, great stories. Yeah, fun stories. Blowing. Uh, so, I mean, we'll, we'll take, you know, obviously that team, you know, into the, the era that, that they did all their best work, Um, and obviously we're talking about, you know, we had the Genesis, the Sega CD, the 32X, and then the Pico, so these kind of questions will be, you know, around the hardware that, that you guys worked on as a team, so, I mean, when it comes to the marketing, obviously targeting an older demographic with the Genesis did prove to be a, a master stroke, but could you believe that it had paid off even whenever younger children started mimicking the sega scream well you know this is one of the
0: things i think people miss that as a marketeer i was very much aware of if you get big brother who's 16 17 to playing sega genesis little brother who's 9 or 10 is sure as hell gonna want to play sega yep. genesis yeah so i was not at all surprised that we also grew our business with the with the younger audience successfully against Nintendo because they wanted to emulate bigger brother, and uh, you know the Sega scream was a big part of it, and I, I think it's mentioned in the console's book. I knew we had been successful when I, I picked my daughters up at uh, I have I have six children, so I, two of my daughters were at the same uh, middle school and high school, and uh, when I picked them up, and the, the other kids saw me driving up they would yell, SEGA! <laughs> I, knew I, I knew I'd made it when that happened. Well, the younger kids were yelling SEGA as well.
1: <laughs>
2: right, so Because of that whole era, Genesis remains SEGA's most successful, iconic con- console to this day, uh, which is even more remarkable when you see that the console didn't sell well in Japan in its home territory. Uh, given the fact that Sega of America and your team made the the Genesis such a success... Do you feel that there was some well resentment or uh, antagonism from from Japan, for lack like of a better word? Um, do you think that had an impact on the events that would unfold later on uh, after the Genesis lie?
0: Absolutely, but I, I must confess I didn't realize it at the time because I thought you know we're one company; they must be very happy that we're so successful in the United States and Europe, uh, and and I didn't realize that. What was actually going on in, in Japan was that uh, Haya Nakayama would walk into the decision room every Monday where he had all his directors of marketing and sales and and R and D and and, and he he'd basically beat the hell out of them because they weren't as successful as we were here in the United States or or as Mega Drive was in in, in Europe and uh, you know if you're if you're getting yelled at year day after week after week and you're not as successful as Tom is in the United States, pretty soon you're going to hate that guy, Tom. And <laughs> I was completely unaware of that until I, basically, until after I'd left, uh, left Sega.
2: Wow. wow. I think there's a, there, was an, there was an infamous story that I read in, in *Console Wars, again, referring to the book, where I think the rumor was that Nakayama smashed up a, a Sega Pico, because a prototype one, because it wasn't, up to uh, i think it was your 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 specification that it had to be retail for under uh a hundred dollars or something to that effect is
0: that a story you recall yeah yeah no I, and, and and by the way i i loved i loved the pico and and uh it' was a great educational product as well as being a really fun system for younger children and uh that had a lot to do with my uh going and and basically uh, helping buy leapfrog. For Knowledge Universe, because I knew that we could do something very similar and very successfully. Uh and it but it was kind of a strange thing because Nakayama loved I thought he loved the PICO too, but we had we had built Pico sales to, as I recall, about a hundred million dollars in the United States. So I thought it was pretty successful. But the board of Sega, and I don't know if this was Nakayama specifically or if it was Okawa-san or some of the other members of the, of the board of directors of Sega basically said to me, uh, probably via an email, why are you wasting your time on an educational product that's so hard to make successful when all you need to do is another Sonic the Hedgehog and you'll do $400 million in, in revenue? <laughs> uh, and so it, it was kind of a strange thing because I thought Nakayama was in favor of it, but maybe he, he deep down wasn't.
2: That's very, that's very odd because the, the Pico is actually, it was still being manufactured in Japan, um, way beyond the Dreamcast, actually. Uh, I think 2005, it actually got discontinued. So yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's an odd thing indeed for them to say.
0: Yeah. No, you're, you're absolutely right. In fact, you probably aren't aware of this, but at Leapfrog, we actually did uh software on the Pico, uh, for the Pico in Japan. Wow.
1: Yeah. Jeez. After I left Sega, obviously. Yeah. Anyway, but, but still, still going all those years later. Yeah. But I mean, I mean, so when when Joe Miller proposed that Project Mars would become an add-on, um, it said then that it became a Sega of America project. Um, is this your view? Um, and given that, that Sega of America didn't want, you know, the the thirty two X, you know, in the first place, whenever we spoke to Al. Um, he said his first thoughts when shown was get that away from us now. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, did, did you ever scrap, consider scrapping the 32X or was there ever an opportunity for you to do that?
0: Well, remember, I really wanted to keep Genesis alive for a longer period of time. Yeah. And uh, I was very concerned about uh, the upcoming Saturn uh, launch and... I, I really wanted us to have another year or two of Genesis life, and I thought the 32x was a way of extending Genesis by at least having that claim of 32-bit technology, 32x. Uh, and and of course we we had agreement. I thought we had agreement with SOJ on that, and we were supposed to have. A, we were obviously in the United States. We were doing a number of titles for it, but in, in Japan they were supposed to two and. Uh, Somehow that slipped or didn't arrive on time or didn't materialize the way it was supposed to, and so that was part of the reason why thirty-two X was not was not successful. But the the strategy was to help it to use it to help keep Genesis alive.
1: Yeah, because I know I know you're you're quoted. I think the the classic Gaming Quarterly did a, a great documentary as well on his channel a few years ago um, about the the whole you know Saturn thirty-two uh, X kind of era um and he's got a line on screen that actually quotes you saying that you know i felt we should have stuck with genesis for another year so you know that just obviously you're, you're confirming that as well yes that's right yeah
2: especially when you look at what nintendo were doing with it with the super nintendo at the time with the super nes they uh managed to find tremendous success in in 1995 with a few titles like uh yoshi's island donkey kong country too um it shows there really was life still in that sixteen bit, bit market, I think.
0: Yes, I think there was.
2: Oh well. Wow. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it really would have been nice to get an extra year out of the out of the Genesis, as you say. But um as much as the thirty two X was uh, was a failure in the end, um when you look at the Sega C D, you did have some modest success with that. Um now Sega were, again, this is Sega leading the way under, under your stewardship. I mean, Sega led the way with a, with a CD format for video games. Uh, do you have any fond memories of the of the Sega CD era?
0: Oh, yes. I, you know, first of all, imagine back then, and all of a sudden you have this promise of almost unlimited memory <laughs> and the ability to use full motion <laughs> video, live action video, combined with animation, combined with orchestra, uh, music that's, you know, quality of, of the finest uh, stereo equipment, Dolby equipment, what have you. Uh, it sounded great, <laughs> you know. <laughs> and, and also, there was this issue. We all knew that optical discs were where the future was going, but we didn't know how to do it. We didn't know how to program for it. So we had to learn how to do it, because it was different than, than just doing a, a long cartridge game and uh and so what there was a great deal of learning that went on so i'm really glad we did sega cd because it did help us and a number of other people including sony learn how to program for the cd optical disc format
2: it's a brilliant point there because yeah if it sony was so tied to the to the sega cd at the time obviously they were looking for a way in and yeah they were the they were the sega cd's biggest supporter weren't they
0: yes they were and uh at the time, uh, I, you know, they did half the titles and we did half the titles ourselves, and I don't think there was anybody else uh, initially, at least at the very beginning, uh, as far along as the two of us were. And, and I became very good friends with uh, the Sony people, Olaf Olsen and Mickey Shuloff and some of the others there.
1: Great stuff. I mean, we will, we will come on to the Sega and Sony relationship very shortly, but... Um, we're we're going to move on now to the the sega saturn um so i mean we are we are huge fans of, of the saturn here at the sega guys but uh when you guys first caught a glimpse of it um is it correct to say you were unimpressed um the word lousy <laughs> was used by <laughs> by joe miller by joe. in the, in the, the console wars book um what what was it specifically about the console that gave you cause for concern was was it the hardware, or was it just the fact that you thought it was just too soon because you wanted to stay with Genesis? Well,
0: it was all of that. And and from Joe's perspective, uh, as I recall, first of all, Joe felt that the architecture made it very difficult to program for. And he, he wasn't crazy about the chip architecture of the, of the Saturn. And he also, I mean, he basically believed it should just be better. And he was a big proponent. This was now just the very, very beginning of Internet time. He was a big proponent way back then of having better Internet uh, capabilities and, uh, and connectivity. And uh, he saw the future. Of course, we'd messed around with, uh, with the Sega Channel here in the United States, so we knew you could deliver games via, via cable. But he saw the opportunity of being able to deliver games via, via the Internet way back then. And he thought that that should be the next part of what was built into a, 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 a new game system. So there were there were a number of factors at, at, at work there.
1: So so basically, Joe wanted to do with, or felt that Saturn should have been, you know, what Dreamcast eventually did, you know, by bundling in that, that kind of modem ID and, and taking on online gaming.
0: Yeah, that's right.
1: Yeah, wow.
2: Wow. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, it's, again, it's another first from Sega. But I mean, yeah, what you're saying about the architecture or what Joe said about the architecture, it it was prophetic, really, because as much as uh, James and I do love the Saturn, we do know um, that it was a nightmare for developers. Um, So it was going to be problematic. But given any shortcomings with the system, those aside, if you do you feel that if you had any, if the sort of autonomy you had with the Genesis, if you had that for the, the sake of Saturn, could you have made that, as successful if you didn't have, you know, Sega of Japan pushing for the early launch and everything?
0: Yeah, no, I, I do. I mean, I felt the September launch was too early, and then when I was forced to launch it in June, that was <laughs> really too early. We didn't, I mean, as you know, we, didn't, we couldn't even provide hardware to all of the retail outlets that wanted hardware. In other words, we couldn't even give four pieces of hardware to every store in America that wanted it, and uh, therefore we had to, uh, to leave some out and you know these were people that we had worked so hard to build up a positive relationship with and all of a sudden now uh we surprise them with a, a june launch and we can't supply them uh, <laughs> so, so it was crazy and then yeah. of course on top of that we didn't have enough software uh you know we, we were supposed to have at least six titles at launch and we didn't and it just it was a mess it was a real mess so to answer your question i think if we had really done what I wanted to do and not launched at all that year and waited another year, that by then we would have had the manufacturing issues resolved, we would have had enough good software, we would have been able to figure out all of our distribution and marketing issues, and we would have had a good chance at, uh, at and hopefully have a sonic title on it, we would have had a good chance of, of being successful with Saturn in the United States at least.
1: I mean, obviously Nakayama did mandate, you know, the early launch of the console in in the US leaving you with, with very little say. I mean, did did you try and push back or I mean did 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 he even give you any hint that you might have reconsidered or, or was it just, you know, he was hell bent on going on that day?
0: Oh no, I I fought back on that and uh, I'm sure I, I can recall having some somehow these conversations always occurred by phone late at night and I, I I seem to recall having almost a shouting match with him over this and uh and you know he, he just he was convinced that this was the right thing to do and I remember at one point I think I said something like, so you guys in Japan who never were successful with Genesis, you think that you know how to market our products in the United States better than we know how to, and uh you know he Basically, said, yeah, we do.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Even with the track record that you had just proven for years. (laughs) Yeah. yeah,
0: uh, It was very, very strange. Um, Incredibly
1: frustrating as well.
0: It was very, well, that's why I left the company, basically. Yeah, well, that's when I I had to leave the company. Yeah. Yeah. Wow.
2: I mean, you you talk about Saturday in September the 2nd. did you have a lot of invested into that day? Um and do you feel obviously you feel like releasing on that date would have given the Saturn a better start to its life cycle? Um you talk talk about going out of the year late a year later, but um one thing that James and I always talk about is 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 the big three, Fighter two, Sega Rally. Do you feel, you know, holiday uh nineteen ninety five may have been a better, better bet with that with that software in tow uh, and did you have much in terms of marketing invested into saturday on september 2nd uh
0: no i mean i think any time later would have been better frankly so <laughs> so uh i didn't have that much invested in it but i uh, just it just uh you know we just couldn't we couldn't pull it off with this early uh, this early launch had we done it in September, would we have been successful? Maybe a little bit more successful, but uh, at least a, at least we would have had a fighting, a better fighting chance. We wouldn't have annoyed so many people. Mm,
1: yeah, because yeah. I mean, I mean the the thing that always sticks for me, um, you know, and Dan as well, obviously owning owning the Saturn back then, is that you know Virtua Fighter one and Daytona as great as they were and as far ahead of of everything that was available at that time. as as we said, you you look at Virtua Fighter 2, which came out, you know, December 95, you look at Sega Rally, you know, January 96, Virtua Cop. If you had those three alongside Panzer Dragoon, you know, all of a sudden the narrative changes, the the quality of that software compared to what it launched with, you know, as playable as they were, it it just always seems to me that it, it gave Sony... Along with the two nine nine, it gave them a, a massive start because there was almost a false power narrative. Been yeah. play there?
0: No, I, I think you're
1: right. Uh, yeah.
0: Anyway, it's a to me, it's a sad state of it. It was a sad state of affairs, and a very sad time for me because then yeah. I had I, to I leave.
2: But it's definitely a shame um, because it's it's one point in Sega's history where you can definitely sense a, a sense of turning point in there. Um, I mean, even past the launch, um you can see that the victories, that the chances of a Saturn victory are, are, are remote. Do you think, would you have been tempted to stay at Sega if it wasn't for Sega Japan's meddling? Was that, was that really the straw that broke the camel's back?
0: Yeah, that absolutely was. I mean, I, I felt that, uh you know, this, the fact that, Initially, they allowed us to make the decisions for the United States market, and, and uh, and, uh, and we were very successful and passed Nintendo in share of market, and they never got above a 12% share of market in Japan. It just didn't make any sense why all of a sudden they were trying to make all the decisions, were making all the decisions for the, for the United States, uh, market and the Western world. Um, uh, and I, and I just, I felt it was wrong, um, but if, if it had if it had been different, I probably would have stayed would have stayed longer. I was being romanced, if you will, by uh, hmm. uh, Mike Milken and Larry Ellison, who wanted me to leave Sega and form a, an education technology company, which became known as Knowledge Universe. And, and certainly, after the decision to uh, to launch early with Saturn, I accepted their offer and agreed to uh, to join them.
1: So I mean we'll, we'll touch back again Tom on that Sega and Sony relationship that kind of came up a wee okay. bit just before the the Saturn. Um I mean there's the story of the the Sega and Sony hardware deal um which came apart in the end uh, and there are there's different reports on whether this was a, a disagreement on hardware focus or Sega of Japan feeling that Sony had too little experience in the video game space. So I mean Are you able to maybe shed some light on, you know, what blocked it and and just, you know, how how close did it actually come to happening?
0: Yeah. Well, and I thought that was an obviously brilliant thing to do, (laughs) you know, (laughs) to have one hard system. None of us were making money on hardware or much money on hardware to start with. So uh, the deal was that we would have the Sony Sega or Sega Sony whatever you want to call it. And. And we'd share the the loss or, or small profit on the hardware, but whichever one of us made the software would benefit from that revenue and profit. Well, in those days, we were much better at doing games than Sony was. So I saw this as a as a slam dunk win for Sega. We would we would really make a lot more revenue and profit than than they would, even though we were partners. And uh, and when they wanted to go ahead and do it. It just seemed crazy to me that Nakayama didn't want to do it. And by the way, I I do blame myself for this because it it seems so obvious to me. I must not have sold it properly. I must not have communicated it properly because it's just a no-brainer. And uh, I I, I just – I don't know what I could have done better, but there must have been a way that I could have convinced them. Maybe I needed more analytics, more math, more showing potential revenue and profit than what I had projected uh, because it's it's an obvious win for Sega and it didn't happen
1: mm. I mean th- there's, there's an irony almost that you know that Nakayama kicked out the Sony idea for them having too little experience in gaming but yet only a what a year 18 months or so later maybe about two years at most that he would then fear Sony enough to rush out Saturn ahead of Playstation yeah it's, it just seems yeah. really ironic that in that short a time, it was you know other too experienced to to partner with, and all of a sudden it's oh we'll be better get out before them. You know it's, it's such an ironic turn of events.
0: Yeah, it really is. Uh, you know, he just he didn't believe that a big corporation like Sony could could figure out the video game business that quickly. That quickly, and why should we help them? Well, turned out they didn't need our help that much.
2: <laughs> but you mentioned. I mean, you can't. Um... Blame yourself a bit on that one, though, Tom. I mean, looking at uh, some of the stuff that was going on in Sony as well. I mean, Ken Kutaragi had to fight too for now. I mean, he'd only got sacked by Sony, so it was a it was a tough sell to his top brass as well. Um, so uh, yeah, I think there was a, an awful lot of, of forces at play, I and mean, we know it. Knowing how stubborn Sega Japan was, I imagine that it would have. Sometimes I feel like it, you could have sold them, you know, water into wine, and they and they wouldn't they wouldn't have uh, gone for it.
1: <laughs>
2: unfortunately i think you're right <laughs> <laughs> but um you did have a good relationship with sony you did mention um uh your relationship with Olaf um, do you feel that if there was a partnership between sony and sega uh, as you mentioned do you feel that it would have been long lasting and prosperous um you know especially as you had that those early days with the sega cd with them um do you feel if they did go on with the, with the, the say the Sega PlayStation, would there be a Sega PlayStation Two, or do you think they may have parted ways afterwards?
0: Well, it's always hard to to say what would have happened with big corporation like that, but uh, we we really did have a good relationship. And we enjoyed working with each other, so at least in uh, in the Western world, I, I think we could have had a good chance of a partnership that lasted for some period of time.
1: So we'll just move on to the the final section then, Tom, which uh, is just a kind of summary. So you know the the Sega of today uh, is a very different beast, as we've said, we've spoken about it so many times. The you know the changes between the company that you worked at to what it is just now. So many franchises left unused, um, but I mean, despite that, a, a lot of the the image that you and your team created persists today. You know a lot of the you know, the not, not so much inventions, but the, the ideas that you guys, you know, laid down, you know, the the rating system, the lifestyle, the gaming, you know, educational stuff, you know, with with the Pico, all these things that you you know, that endure today. Um, you know, even looking at the modern day, that the, the Genesis Mini sports, the Sega pack in box design, you know, that, that you fought for. You fought for Sonic to, to be the the pack in game with with the price drop and the Genesis Mini has that packaging on there. Um so even though you've moved on and um, we see you on a lot of podcasts and a lot of YouTube channels talking about Sega. Um, I take it that there's still a, a massive amount of fondness and nostalgia for those years.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, I'm really, I must say, I'm still kind of surprised about it. Uh, you know, when five or six, five years ago, I guess when Blake Harris said, Hey, I want to do a book about the time you battled against Nintendo. I, I said, geez, Blake, there's probably 200 people in the world who care. <laughs>
1: and,
0: and he said, no, no, you're wrong. There's thousands and thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who still uh, fondly remember that period of time and want to know more about it. And, and certainly that's been true. And uh, I'm really happy to see them uh, bringing out the the retro uh, version, the smaller version of, of, of Genesis now. And uh, and I guess they're doing the same thing. They've done the same thing with King. Um, I do I do it does make me proud that uh, all this stuff we did way back then is still liked today. <laughs> uh, even though the technology is so much better today. I mean I look at my boys playing on PlayStation 4 and my god I mean you can't tell the difference between a, a movie and, and a video game. Um, <laughs> but anyway, no I'm I'm very 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 happy about all that.
1: No, I mean it's funny you you're saying that as well about the difference between a movie and a video game and I actually think Tom that that's that's one of the reasons why I think um that retro gaming does endure because yeah games today are they're on scale with movies, they've got budgets, they've got, you know, Hollywood actors faces and voices in the games, but for me and I, and Dan and a lot of other retro gamers it's it's that kind of short burst fun gameplay. Don't worry about checkpoints or save points or quests or, you know, missions or open worlds. You just put a cartridge or a disc in and just, you know, enjoy some old-fashioned, you know, proper fun gaming. Um, and I, I think these systems, th- that I know I play them more than even the newest Xbox that I've got. So, yeah, um, you guys were at the forefront of creating something absolutely wonderful um, and again just obviously thank you that you guys did what you did
0: well thank you and i and in my i'm in my office above uh, my garage here at home but down in my basement where i don't have good wi-fi i have 200 sega genesis games and every sega cd game you made lots of game gear games uh I, i have a saturn down there as well uh and I've got a actual Art virtual Fighter arcade machine.
1: Oh, Tom, I'm coming to you. <laughs> yep. Me too. <laughs> Come on over. <laughs> and so I still wandered
0: down. Oh, you'll love this. I've got one of the old retail displays for Genesis where we had this changer in it. And you could put six different cartridges in it. And the player could pick which one he wanted to play in the store. And of course, that drove the store managers crazy because these kids would come in there, spending hours and hours playing uh, Sega Genesis video games and not buying anything. <laughs>
1: oh, Dan! Uh, it's but, uh, it's, it's uh, Christmas at wait. the Kalinskis.
2: Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. I mean, yeah, it's like James says, um, that period is just so special for so many people. And there really is something about those classic Sega games. um, Because, as you were saying, play is important. And I feel like the retro games really are more about fun than enjoyment. Um, And there is something to say about modern games but the immediacy and that immediate fun that you get with retro games uh, and Sega games especially. I don't think anything personifies Sega as fun quite like a Sega game does when it comes to video games.
0: Well, I, I think you're right, and I think that's why I enjoy wandering down there and, and, yeah. and still playing uh, Sonic the Hedgehog 2 or, or even 1, um, Toe Jam and R-Roll and uh, Daytona Racing. Yeah, it's, it really is uh, instant fun. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Wonderful. So, if you were to come across a, a, t- a time traveling machine or a DeLorean, uh, and knowing what you what you know now and seeing what you what you have seen, if you could go back and speak to yourself during your time with Sega, uh, what one decision would you make to alter the course of Sega's history, and what would you advise your younger self?
0: Well, again, um, I still, and I I beat my head against the wall on this. What could I have done? to get the Sega-Sony, Sony-Sega relationship cemented. So we had one hardware system that we were each making software video games for. And I just, it bothers me that I, I it's such a no-brainer. How come I wasn't able to be persuasive on that? Uh, so I could, again, I know you said I wasn't a failure. I couldn't, have, but I think I that was a failure of mine. I, I should have been able to somehow uh, get that accomplished. And I, I don't know what it would have been taken. Maybe I had to go over Nagyama's head directly to the board of directors or something, but I should have been able to get that done.
1: And, and who knows what would have happened. Uh, as we've said, you know, had, had that deal gone ahead, would there would have been no PlayStation. As we know it, there would have been no, no Steve Race 299. <laughs> <laughs> you know, oh, I, st- I still uh, remember that E3. I could, I, that was a mic drop moment. Can't believe that.
0: Yeah, it was. It was oh. but, uh, uh, for us. It was a no shit moment. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Aye, well, <laughs> uh, from from a former colleague, no less. Yeah, former friend. Yeah, <laughs> who who liked to burst sonic balloons, if I remember. Oh yeah, he did. He did. He did. <laughs> <laughs> this is oh. oh, but um, Tom. We've we've come to the end of, of the, the questions that we have, but um, again, on behalf of myself, Dan, all the listeners who are going to tune into this, um, thank you so, so much for, for giving us your time.
0: All right. Well, thank you, James and Dan. I really enjoyed talking with you, and I look forward to uh, to hearing what this all sounds like when, uh, when it goes live.
1: Yep. Excellent. Thank you very much, Dan.
0: Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Cheers. You take care. Bye-bye. Take care.
2: And that was Tom Kalinski. And I hope our listeners all enjoyed that as much as we did. We'd love to hear your thoughts on the episode. You can catch us as always at the Sega Guys. You can catch myself at swooper underscore D, you can catch James at the Sega Holic. Uh, we'd love to hear from you, and we'll speak to you next time. Cheers, guys. Believe in yourself. Yourself, yourself.